thinking something like this. Uh, My marriage, my family, my health, my relationships, my finances, my career, or whatever it may be, desperately needs help. But I really don't anticipate that God's going to help me. Uh, I don't think that God has time for me. Or I don't deserve his help. I mean, after all, I'm the one that created this mess. If I'm really, really honest, it was my sin, it was my folly, it was my stupidity that led to this. Why would God help me? Or this is a disaster. It can't be fixed. It's so far beyond that. You know, people impose all kinds of limits on Jesus in their time of need that frankly do not exist. I looked ahead at the next three paragraphs in Mark and I thought this to myself, wow, you know, I feel like these texts that are coming up, I literally just preached these. This exact same content. And as we look ahead, what do we see Jesus doing? He's going to heal another demon. He's going to or, or, uh, cast out another demon. He's going to heal another person. He's going to feed another 4,000. And the language is going to be almost exactly the same as, as the language just on the page opposite of it. It's the exact same stuff. And I thought, I'm going to preach the same sermons again. More of the exact same And could it be that that's precisely the point? More. It just keeps coming. Of the same remarkable things that only Jesus can do. And I think we've got this wonderful reminder that Jesus is Lord without limits. He doesn't have any of those. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus is Lord without limits? And you may go, of course I believe that. I know intellectually that that is true. But I didn't ask you if you know something in your brain. I asked you if you believe that. Do you believe that Jesus is Lord without limits? Are you convinced of that? Follow along as I read Mark 7. I'll begin in verse 24 and read through the end of the chapter. And from there he arose and went to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know. Yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. And she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first. For it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee and the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hands on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. 
He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. I want to highlight for you this morning four limits that Jesus' ministry does not have. And the first one would be this. His ministry is not limited to a particular region or place. Uh, look back at verse 24 and then as well at verse 31. Verse 24 says, and, and from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And if you skip down to verse 31, after he's in that region, it, verse 31 tells us that he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee and the region of the Decapolis. Those two verses, though we might miss it, um, they actually account for a 200-kilometer trek that takes Jesus and his disciples uh, basically uh, way up northwest of the Sea of Galilee and then back around to the southeast. Up to this point in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has really concentrated his, his ministry in the area of Capernaum and right in and around the Sea of Galilee which would have been characterized as a Jewish region. Jesus has been in Israel. He's been in Palestine. Of course, we'd say, when you think back through the Old Testament, what we know is that God loves the Jews. Of course, Jesus would concentrate his efforts and attention there. They're his special people. But now, in verse 24, Jesus enters pagan Gentile territory. Uh, if you don't know what a Gentile is, a, a Gentile in the Bible is basically anybody that's not a Jew. You have the Jewish people, God's people, and the Gentiles were everybody else. And now in verse 24, Jesus is entering pagan Gentile land. And I would ask you this question, what do we see? More of the same. Entire Sidon and the Decapolis, Jesus demonstrates yet again that he is Lord of demons. He is Lord of disease and everything else. His ministry is not limited to a particular region or a particular place or anything like that. Uh, maybe you find yourself saying things like this. I know that God has and can do great things all around the world you know, I really have no doubt that he could do great things back in Israel in Bible times. I mean, there's just account after account in Scripture of God doing things like that in Israel with God's people. I have no doubt that he could do great things in orphanages for prayer warriors like George Mueller. I have no doubt that he could do awesome and incredible things in China for missionaries like Hudson Taylor. And I, I really have no doubt, even right here in our midst, that our own church, that God could do great things in that godly family right over there. Or that household right over there. They really love Jesus. They're like the cream of the crop. God could do good things there. But I'm not sure that God could or even would do powerful things in my home or in my family. It's just a bit too pagan, if you know what I mean. Or in my school that I go to, nobody really cares about Jesus there. Or the heart of my loved one, it is too hard. I mean, it is just stone cold. It is like iron. Or even our community right here in Beaumont, we might think thoughts like this. You know, Beaumont is so wealthy and comfortable. Why would the people of this community need Jesus? They've got what they want and what they need. You realize when your thoughts run like that, you're essentially saying that this or that place is God forsaken. This or that person is God forsaken. Nothing good will ever happen there. This or that situation is God forsaken. 
Have you limited the ministry of Jesus to a particular place or region in your mind like that? I was started looking at this text this week and then was praying one morning and God really convicted me about that as I prayed about our associate pastor search. Uh, let me just give you a little story from that. Um, on three occasions over the past 18 to 24 months, I've reached out. One of the people that I've reached out to is a very well-known or well-networked, I should say, pastor in the Toronto area. And I asked him uh, on all three occasions, probably spread out by six months each time, I asked him, hey, um, do you know of anyone? that you could recommend or that might be looking. And each time he told me this, he goes, I don't know of anyone at the moment. I thought, man, are you serious? What are you talking about? I mean, I understand that I might not know anyone because I'm just little Nate here, but you're like, you know everybody. You're super well connected and networked. What do you mean you don't know anyone that you could recommend right now? And I found myself thinking, Uh, thoughts like this. It's hard to find people here in Alberta. It's hard to find people here in Canada. And I was reminded looking at this passage this week that that is not a problem for Jesus. And yet we think like that, that here's a region or here's a space or here's a situation or here's a problem or here's a person where this, this one's just tough. Jesus' ministry is not limited to a particular region or a particular place or a particular situation or anything like that. He is Lord without limits. And so I want to ask you again, do you believe that? Not with your brain, but do you actually believe that? Do you think there is some person or place where Jesus is incapable of powerfully ministering and doing awesome things? A second limit that Jesus' ministry does not have. His ministry is not limited to an exceptional class of people. Mark intentionally arranges these next few accounts right here in Mark. Uh, He places them right after his encounter that we saw the last two weeks with the Jewish elite, the scribes, and the Pharisees. Men who thought that they were squeaky clean. They thought they were shiny. They viewed themselves as polished, privileged, and exceptional in the eyes of God. And we saw that they had no need for Jesus. They felt no need for him. They, they, they feel no sense of desperation. And the woman that we encounter in this next story, though, she is literally the antithesis of those men in every way. Her life tells us something about the kind of people that Jesus responds to. Jesus responds to people who have needs. Look at verses 24 and 25. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house and did not want anyone to know. Yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. So Jesus wants to keep his presence concealed in this region for one reason or another. But verse 24 tells us he couldn't be hidden. Everywhere he went with the 12, somebody spotted him and the crowds start to form. And a desperate Gentile woman is in this situation where she needs Jesus' help and she knows it. And the text tells us that she came and she fell down at his feet and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. Can you imagine the desperation and exasperation that this woman would have felt as a parent? Watching her her daughter suffer like this. 
She is desperate, she is needy, and she knows it. And what we're about to see is that Jesus responds to people who have needs and who know it. But not only that, Jesus responds to people, if I could word it this way, who have demerits. Back when I was in school, the good old days, as we say, we got these things called demerits for our failures and misbehavings, and too many demerits would land you in detention. I don't know if this is still common today or not. But to land you in detention... That's right, you would be detained. It sounds a lot like prison, and that's because it was. <laughs> Not that I speak from experience. <laughs> On the human level, this woman approaches Jesus with zero merit. In fact, all that she has from a human perspective, and especially from the perspective of, of the men, like the, the Pharisees and scribes from the previous text, all she has is demerits or strikes against her. Who is she to think that she, of all people, could approach Jesus, and let alone that she could actually receive Jesus' help? Mark seems to go out of his way to highlight this woman's demerits, so to speak. Verse 26 says, Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. What has Mark highlighted for us? Well, he's reminding us she's a woman. In that society, for a woman to approach a man would have been inappropriate. And so what she's doing here is, is very much defying social norms. Like, this is not okay, what she's doing. She's very much going against the grain here. Further, she's a Gentile, meaning she's not Jewish. She's a pagan woman. And to be even more specific than that, she's a Canaanite woman. Uh, one of the parallel passages, Matthew 15, 22, calls her a Canaanite woman. Go back with me in your mind to the Old Testament, the very first few books of the Old Testament, and think about who the Canaanites were. The Canaanites hated God. They loved iniquity. They worshipped idols. Anytime Israel uh, got too close to the Canaanites, they would just lead the Israelites astray into their idolatry and pagan worship and sin. And so when Israel took the promised land, God ordered Israel to wipe the Canaanites basically off the face of the earth. And this text tells us of this woman that she is, a, or the, the, the parallel passage tells us she is a Canaanite woman. Uh, and we have her specific roots. She is a Syrophoenician, Mark tells us, by birth. In other words, from a Jew's perspective, thinking about all that the Canaanites were, she is all of that by birth. It's in her blood. She approaches Jesus with everything stacked against her. And yet what we're about to see is that Jesus responds to people just like that, people who have a ton of demerits. Jesus knows no such thing as a worthy person. The men in the last passage thought, oh, we are, we are those people. We are the worthy ones. Jesus knows no such person. And Jesus responds to people who have faith. Look at verse 27. And he said to her, let the children be fed first. And here's his explanation for that statement. For it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Okay, well that didn't sound all that positive. Jesus just referred to this woman as a dog. 
The Jewish people were God's chosen children, and they often referred to the Gentiles as dogs. And and not just any kind of dog, the kind of dog that ran loose in the streets as disease-infected scavengers. It's not a pretty picture. But for as harsh as Jesus' words first appear to this woman, let me just point out a few details about what he said. The word that Jesus uses for dogs, uh, it means little dogs. And he's describing a situation here where the dogs are not street scavengers running around, but more like pets within the home under the table. Also, he mentions uh, feeding the children first. In other words, his statement, he's making a statement that's not excluding the Gentiles from God's blessing. He's just pointing out an ordered sequence. In Matthew chapter 15, verse 24, Jesus answered her this way in the parallel passage. He says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In the Old Testament era, which is more or less the same era that Jesus is ministering in in his time on earth, God chose a special people, the people of Israel. And it was through those people, the people of Israel, that the nations were to be blessed. God was going to bless Israel, and through blessing Israel, bless the nations. And it was God's plan that that, uh, the time for the Gentiles to be blessed, that that would happen indirectly through Israel. And that seems to be what Jesus is getting at here, that that he's going to bless his people Israel, and through them he will bless the Gentiles. But notice the woman's response. If you look at verse 28, it says, But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. If you you notice carefully, she, she starts with a statement of complete and total agreement. Yes, Lord, I agree. She doesn't question the way that Jesus describes her as a dog. She doesn't kick back on Jesus' diagnosis of her. She agrees that she's a sinful woman. She agrees that she has no claim on Jesus. She has no merit that would make her worthy of his blessing. And yes, she agrees. She understands, at least in some sense, the priority of the Jewish people in God's plan that those are his people. She agrees, she agrees, she agrees. But then what she does, she takes the image that Jesus has already laid out there on the table and she goes, yes, Lord, but can we take that image just a little bit further? And so she flushes it out even more and she says, "Yet, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And the idea seems to be that she'd be saying something like this, Jesus, when you spread a feast of blessing before your chosen people, your children, it is so great and it is so abundant that crumbs fall to the ground. And when you spread a feast like that before your kids, it's not like your children eat and then they leave the room and then the dogs come clean up what's left. No, your blessings are so abundant that it all happens together simultaneously. You spread something so great before your people that the crumbs are falling off the table onto the ground. When you bless Israel, you simultaneously bless the nations and I know that you can bless me right here, right now. Look at verse 29. It says, And he said to her, For this statement, because of this statement, You may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. Uh, As far as I know, 
This is the only miracle that Mark records uh, that Jesus performs at a distance uh, without giving any kind of verbal command. He just tells this woman that it happened. Your daughter's been healed. You can go your way. And in very simple faith, the woman leaves and she goes home. She doesn't say, I mean, you put yourself in her shoes. What? Say what? <laughs> you said, my daughter's healed? What? Like, don't you want to, like, pronounce her healed or something? Or Jesus, you need to come to where my daughter is at and let's just make sure. Because, I mean, like, I've got you on the phone, so to speak. Like, let's, let's make sure we got this all handled. She doesn't do any of that. No. The words of Jesus are enough for her. Yes, Lord. I'll go home. Look at verse 30. And she went home and she found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Jesus responds to people who have faith. Faith that sees massive problems like the problem this woman was experiencing. Faith that sees massive problems as teeny, tiny, little crumbs. She viewed something big in the eyes of men, the desperate situation of her daughter, as if it were small and easy for Jesus, like a crumb. Just a small benefit of his grace. And she argued that there was more than enough food to go around, that Jesus was so great. She did not see him as limited or, or lacking in love or insufficient. She also saw him as caring about everyone, including the Gentiles. How did she see him? as Lord without limits. And we might ask, well, is there anyone that Jesus doesn't respond to? Is there anything that limits the ministry of Jesus? And we would have to answer that question, yes. What is it? Unbelief. Not neediness, not demerits, not problems, but unbelief. Remember Nazareth? Jesus could do no mighty work there because of what? Their unbelief. Remember the Pharisees and scribes? They're just hard and cold. Those were the places and hearts where Jesus did no mighty work. And here's a Gentile woman in a pa- pagan place who is needy, who is sinful, who recognizes that she has all sorts of things about her and in her, and in her life, what she says, what she does that are problematic. And she finds the mercy of God. Jesus' ministry is not limited to an exceptional class of people. He is Lord without limits. He responds to people who have needs. He responds to people who have demerits. And he responds to people who have faith that he is Lord without limits. Do you believe that? Are you sitting there going, I am too dirty. I am not in an exceptional class of people. I am not the kind of Christian that's awesome and incredible. Jesus will do nothing for me. I'm too dirty. Or I haven't performed well enough today. There are those people over there that I want something great to happen for. That's not going to happen. They'll never experience Jesus' work. You know, those thoughts and those statements sounds like you bow and worship before a Lord who has limits. This woman's Lord does not. You are never too dirty for Jesus. The third limit that Jesus' ministry does not have is ministry is not limited to a restricted time. Look back at verse 27. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. 
Uh, when this woman falls before Jesus with her great need and she begs him, I mean, she, she just totally comes in humility, falls on her face, and starts begging. And Jesus responds in such a way that it comes across like he's saying, hey, I don't have time for you. Or, you know, your need, maybe I can recognize it, but it's not the priority here. We're almost given the, the impression at first that Jesus is busy and he's focused on, on something else. And in, in this case in particular, somebody else. In Matthew's account, chapter 15, verse 23, his disciples came and begged him saying, send her away for she's crying out after us. And what does Jesus do? Well, Jesus stops and he gives this woman his undivided attention and then he powerfully meets her need. The ministry of Jesus is not limited to a restricted time period. It is not restricted by time. Jesus does not get too busy. Do you ever wonder if maybe the era of the great workings of God is over or it's past? Or do you ever wonder if God is too busy for your need or he has too many other things on the go or too many other people that he loves more than he loves you? Or views your burden as a lesser priority? I mean, it's big to you, but in the grand scheme of things and from everybody else's perspective, it's not that big. Or you missed the window, you know, that ship has sailed and it's your fault. Visiting hours are over and God is doing something else right now. Jesus' ministry is not limited like that to a particular period of time or constrained by the limits of time. What do we know about God? Well, we know of God that he is eternal, infinite and eternal. He is not bound within time like you and I are. Uh, For you and I, time is limited. We only have so much of it. And once it, it passes, it's gone. And we can only be in one place at one time and all these things. Well, while Jesus was uh, here on earth in a human body, he could only be in one place at one time. But we know of our Lord that, that our Father has no constraints of time. He doesn't get too busy. Nothing's too small. After I got out from one of our meals this week, uh, my wife put a package of cookies on the table. I had already gone up and was taking my plate over to the sink. And my wife puts this package of cookies on the table and I thought, ooh, like, that sounds good. Maybe I'll go back and uh, grab one of those. And as I was doing that, getting ready to go grab one, my wife said, actually, there are only four left. And I told each of the kids that they could have one. Sorry. <laughs> That's like none left for me? And what type of father would I be if I snatched the last one out of my two-year-old's hand and ate it in front of his face as he screamed? <laughs> I would never do that. But this idea of almost, oh man, like you snooze, you lose. Once they're gone, they're gone. Do you view the time of Jesus like that? That first of all, it's limited and there's only so much of it. And once it's gone, it's gone. Or, you know, there's only so much of it and he's going to put it in the really important places on the really important people and that's probably not me. There's probably not any of it left for me or it's too late to ask or why would he give me his time after all the stupid things I've done? And you realize that you would be mistaken because Jesus' ministry is not limited to a restricted time or by any kind of restraints regarding time. He is Lord without limits. Do you believe that? 
fourth limit that Jesus' ministry does not have. His ministry is not limited by a finite amount of character. Jesus' character, his character never runs out. His ministry is not limited because there's only so much of his good character in him. Look at verses 31 and 32. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and he went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee and in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment and they begged him to lay his hand on him. Jesus moves on to another place that also appears to be predominantly Gentile. And what do we see? Jesus stingy now with those pagan Gentiles. No, we see more of the same. People bring a deaf man to Jesus with a speech impediment and they beg Jesus to do something for him. And what does Jesus do? He just unleashes his compassion and his power yet again. It's more of the same and more of the same and more of the same. His compassion knows no bounds. Look at verses 33 and 34. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue and looked up to heaven. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephetha, that is, be opened. Just maybe notice some small things in those verses that Jesus takes this man aside privately. We see Jesus' compassion towards the individual person. There's no question that Jesus is focused on this man. He has his undivided attention. And how does Jesus communicate with him? Jesus communicates basically in a form of sign language that he's kind of uh, making up as he goes because this man can't hear. And so Jesus is speaking to him with with his hands and with his actions and with his face. How compassionate. He is focused on ministering to this man with his needs. The text tells us that he he takes his fingers and he, he puts them in his ears. And apparently Jesus spit on his hands and the idea the text gives is that after doing that, he then touched this man's tongue. He looks up to heaven at one point, probably to indicate to the man that what is about to happen is the work of God. He sighs, perhaps conveying his emotions about the state of this man and his feelings for this man. And it's just more of the exact same Jesus that we have seen again and again and again in the Gospel of Mark, the same compassion that we see in almost every chapter. Again and again and again for people. More of the same Jesus because his compassion knows no bounds. And right along with that, his power knows no bounds. At the end of verse 34, Jesus says to him, Ephetha, that is be opened, and that's exactly what happens. Look at verse 35. And his ears were opened. His tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. What? Just like that. Jesus does what only God could do because Jesus is Lord, and he can do what no one else can do. And then look at verses 36 and 37. And Jesus charged them, all the people that have now witnessed this, to tell no one. But what do they do? They disobey. The more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. In verse 37, and they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. 
Okay, so the passage ends uh, with, with doxology or praise. He's done all things well. Of course he's done all things well. That's the only way he does anything. And he is worthy of your praise. I do want to point out something ironic here in this passage, though, that I think once I show it to you, will leave you scratching your head for a moment, going, how is that possible? Ironically, doxology or praise and disobedience exist at the exact same time and the exact same people. Think about that for a moment. Did you even know that was possible? That a person could be disobeying God, living in active disobedience, and simultaneously praising Him. Whoa, like, that's not okay. And just because you're praising God one moment doesn't mean you're actually living a life of obedience to Him. This Lord that we are seeing in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus Christ deserves praise and He deserves obedience and He demands both. His compassion and His power know no bounds. He is worthy of your praise and your obedience. My wife recently told me about one of the latest trends in the world of self-care. Apparently, people are taking exceptionally long showers up to four hours or longer in length. Um, Basically, people are living in their showers. And maybe you've tried that. I don't know. But uh, maybe it's worth a try. Four hours, maybe you'd feel amazing. I don't know. Um, But when my wife told me about this, she read this article headline to me, I just said, not at our house. Maybe if you live in the city, we're on a cistern. If you turn on the water at our house, it's going to run and it's going to run and it's going to run and then it's not going to run. It's going to run until the cistern empties and then we've got to call a water truck and come get another load. There's a limited supply of water. That's not the case really if you live in the city. I mean, I guess maybe technically, but practically that's not the case. You turn on the water and it will run and it will run and it will run and it will run. You take that four-hour shower unless your dad comes and turns the hot water off as almost every father is threatened to do. God's character, whether it be his compassion or whether it be his power, it's not like a cistern that eventually runs dry. You know, there's so much of it and then it's gone. His compassion and power, they are like a well that just keeps pumping and pumping and pumping and pumping. It just keeps coming. Jesus' ministry is not limited by a finite amount of character. He is Lord without limits. Do you believe that? I think if you do, a few things will happen. If you actually believe that, what will you do? Well, you'll keep going to him. You'll keep coming to him. You'll keep looking to him. You will keep praying to him. You will keep taking massive things to him and saying, God, Jesus, you are Lord without limits. Will you do something about this? And not only the massive things, you will take the small things to him and you will say, God, Lord, Jesus, will you do something about this thing? I know probably nobody else is thinking about it. It may not be important to anybody else. It's important to me. I think it's significant. Would you do something about this? 
you will keep asking him to do things. You will keep looking to him to do things. You will believe that he can, he can work powerfully and he has compassion. Another question for you based on what we've just seen. Does your compassion for needy people have limits? We see Jesus, his doesn't, apparently. What about yours? I know mine has limits. I think all of us, if we're honest, we're like, yeah. I mean, I want to serve. I want to care about people. I want to minister. And I want to be like all in. But at some point, I just start to feel it, you know, like I'm done. Enough. I don't got time for this. Does your compassion for needy people have limits? I think you and I need God's grace. God, would you make me more like Jesus? Would you, would you if you're like this and your spirit lives in me, would you help your spirit to help me be like you? What about this? Are you praising God and disobeying him at the same time in some way? I'm worshiping and disobeying in any realm of your life. That is not okay. This great and awesome Lord deserves your praise and your obedience all at the same time, at all times. Here's an odd question for you. Are you a Gentile? I'm guessing, I, I could be wrong, but I would not be surprised if every single person in this room this morning is a Gentile. Guess what? I think for us there's wonderful, remarkable news in these passages that Jesus offers his salvation to the entire world. And not just his salvation, but all the benefits of his grace and lordship. Not just to the Jews, but to, to the nations. He offers his salvation to those with demerits. He offers his salvation to people whose roots are not good. In the first half of the book of Isaiah, God spends... 35, 40 chapters pronouncing massive amounts of judgment on the nations of the earth. In fact, chapters 13 to 23 are all about judgment on the nations. If we were preaching through the book of Isaiah right now, we'd have like 40 weeks in a row of sermons about judgment. It would get heavy. God's judgment on the Gentiles. It's a lot of doom and gloom. But Isaiah at the end of all that judgment language, those judgment chapters, he prophesies a coming day or a coming era when the Messiah would do great things, yes, for Israel, but not just for Israel, but for the nations. And that's what we're seeing in this passage in real time with Jesus walking through Tyre and Sidon and, and, and the Decapolis. Isaiah 35, 5-6 says this, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf, deaf unstopped, then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. What Isaiah prophesied was happening in real time and it just continues to happen in one day. One day when Jesus returns and rules and reigns, it will be amazingly glorious. Jesus is for all people and he has done great things for you. And the greatest thing that he has done for any of us is something that's still yet to come in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus giving his life on the cross, showing his compassion yet again, and showing his power rising from the grave. But Jesus dying in your place for your sin, and in my place for my sin. Those of us who are Gentiles, what a great God.
And he would love to be your Savior. He would love to be your Lord. But he does expect for you to say, God, I am a sinner. I'm like this woman. If, you, if your attitude's like the Pharisees and the scribes, I don't need Jesus, you're not going to receive his benefits. But if you're like this woman, oh, oh, yeah, okay, I come to you, Jesus, with nothing. I am a sinner. I deserve your judgment. I'm a dog. Will you save me? Will you cleanse me? Jesus Christ promises to save, cleanse, forgive, make you a new person and bring you into his kingdom. If you have not done that, I'd encourage you to cry out to Jesus and ask him to do that for you today. He is Lord without limits. Do you believe that? In the big ways and the small. Would you bow with me? Close your eyes at this time.